1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen.
1: When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
2: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
0: get my new memoir bookends a memoir of love loss and literature wherever books are sold starting july 1st and my children's book princess charming you can learn more about me at zimbyowens.com but really you're here to learn more about the authors and that is what we're going to do also be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the zcast podcast network you can learn more at zcastnetwork.com and definitely check out those shows as well I hope you'll all check out the all-new Zibby Mag, Z-I-B-B-Y-M-A-G, The Literary Lifestyle Destination with essays, book news, a lit lifestyle feature, and even some classes. Check it out, zibbymag.com. E.M. Tran is the author of Daughters of the New Year, a novel. This episode is one of our special guest-hosted ones by Juliana Goldman, who runs Mama Den. E.M. Tran writes fiction and creative nonfiction. Her debut novel, Daughters of the New Year, has been reviewed and excerpted in places like the Georgia Review, Joyland Magazine, Prairie Schooner, Harvard Review Online, and more. She spent an inordinate proportion of her adult life working towards an MFA in creative writing from the University of Mississippi and a PhD in English and creative writing from Ohio University. She is from and currently lives in New Orleans, Louisiana, with her husband and two dogs. She was born in the year of the Earth snake. Ask her about Gilmore Girls or the Bachelor franchise if you want to be her friend.
2: EM Tran, thank you so much for being here to discuss your amazing novel, Daughters of the New Year. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I have to say that I loved reading your book. And part of it is I come from a family of three girls. We have a very complicated relationship with our mother, with we had one sort of with our grandmother and have always been so fascinated. My grandmother was first generation and have always just been so fascinated by lineage and the relationships between women and what stays the same, what doesn't. Um, And so I would just love for you to tell us about Daughters of the New Year and what this book means to you.
1: Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for that compliment. It really means a lot, especially because I made a very conscious decision to focus on the women in this family. There is a father figure, but you know, he's kind of like off to the side. It really is revolving around the mother and the relationship between three sisters. Um, and then as you go farther back, like it's almost like men disappear entirely. <laughs> The narrative. So, which was intentional um, because I really wanted to center women's narratives. So I really appreciate that. And for me, like it, you know, this book, it's fictional, but I I also came from a family that was very women-centered. I have two older sisters. My dad was always at work. So it was like my mom was at the house a lot. And so writing this book was kind of like a love story to all of the women in my life and how complicated it can be. Um, especially growing up in, like, a first-generation immigrant household. But, yeah, I I really... It, it's as much about immigrant narratives as it is about the different places or the roles that we think we have to fulfill as, like, different members of the family, right? Like, there's all these stereotypes about the oldest daughter, the the youngest daughter, the middle child. You know, Jan Brady is, like... <laughs> the ultimate middle child. So uh, I was really interested in exploring those, those themes and, you know, just, I feel like women are so complex and wonderful and nuanced. And I really wanted to write about that. So that's what I set out to do in Daughters of the New Year.
2: And I love how it starts, or you write that this all kind of started with a trophy. Yes. (laughs) Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Swan Trung is the mother, uh, the mother figure in the beginning of this book, and she won a beauty pageant in Vietnam, which you, she tells her children about all the time. And there's this trophy that sits in the living room and the, you know, it's kind of this mysterious object. Well, it's, it's a plastic trophy that she, you know, spray paints and and mix as an imitation of the trophy that she had won for this beauty pageant in nineteen in the nineteen seventies, and it's kind of mysterious. And the kids, you know, don't really know about uh, that much about the pageant. They're really not that interested. And as you go farther back in time, um, because the narrative moves backwards, you yeah. learn about you know some of the Swan's secrets. Right? Like maybe secrets is too strong of a word. It's just stories that she didn't tell her kids because maybe they were too traumatizing or um, she wants to keep something for herself. You know, there's all these different reasons why she doesn't tell her kids. And that's, you know, very common with immigrant narratives The and also like immigrant experiences. We often have that chasm between the first generation and the immigrant generation. So I was trying to create that. But the trophy is really this symbol for beauty, for, for loss, for spectacle. And it's based on a a real trophy in my, in my own life. (laughs) My own mother was a beauty queen in uh, Vietnam. And it was this mysterious, I mean, when I was younger, I like didn't care about the beauty pageant. And then when I got older, I was like, wait, this is like kind of a weird thing that my mom (laughs) was a part of. And I don't know anything about and we have this gigantic silver like solid silver trophy in in our in the piano room. and so the more I kind of dug into that personal narrative, the more I was interested in putting that in the fictionalized one as well.
2: It's so true. you know you grow up and there are just certain things that you might see in your home that are that like you don't think anything of. and then someone and then someone else walks in and they <laughs> see it and it's like, oh, what is this? And it's not until you get older that you can kind of become this outside observer in your own life and your own upbringing. Absolutely.
1: Um, I thought it was normal. And then it, it actually wasn't until I had gone to grad school and I had to write a personal essay about something. And I was like, I guess I'll write about this trophy. And then I started trying to write about it. And I was like, I actually don't know anything about this trophy. And that's kind of embarrassing because it's like this giant object in our home that I don't, that is like really weird. So, yeah, you're totally right. And then when I brought the essay to the other writers in my workshop, they were like, what?
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: So totally true.
2: I love how you write um, what happens when we have the ability to go back uncover a truth that is in reality forever obscured what will we discover how often does history repeat itself without our knowing the same pain and joy experienced again and again I think like uh, that that passage in particular just gave me such goosebumps right because you think that like you're charting your own path but some of the like currents of our past just run through our blood, no matter how hard we try.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about generations, like the book, the scope of the book is very large. And I I was just thinking like, all of us are here now because someone in our past survived, right? Like, there's no, like every single, there's 7 billion people on earth and every single person is alive because someone before them somehow managed to live through, you know, the, (laughs) the horrible reality through each generation. I mean, we all go through traumatic things. And I was just thinking like, that is massive. Like there are just, and we forget, like, sure. We remember our mother's and our father's lives maybe, and to a very limited extent. And maybe we know our grandparents and maybe we know a little bit about our great grandparents, but you really can't go much farther beyond that. Like most people don't know about their great, 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 great grandparents. And so it really is, you do, people get forgotten, right? But that doesn't mean that what they went through or what they experienced like it it just seemed to me so interesting like probably we all go through the same things over and over again we just don't know right and it's possible that it happens over and over and over again because we just keep forgetting because each generation you know begets another generation and gets another one and and so i think that our memories are very short as human beings and part of my project of the book was like interested in going back far enough to think about Okay, like what things happened over and over again. So there's a lot of repetition and a lot of cycling that happens in the narrative.
2: It's so powerful, and I love how you um, go backwards and also tell that narrative through the voices of the different characters, but through their voices from older to younger. So like they kind of start with more perspective, right? And then they they as they go as you go backwards it's sort of like their their core selves.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting too is that like when they go when the, the younger they get, they kind of slowly fade away, like mm-hmm. they kind of disappear and we start moving into the perspectives of the older generations. And it's a reversal, right? Mm-hmm. Like we often think that you know we often forget about the people that are before us and we also are very focused on the individual always moving forward. I, I, I think that that is a very I mean I think it's very particularly Western and very American mm-hmm. like this idea that the individual is always growing, always moving forward. we're always thinking about the future and it's very focused on the eye and so I was I wanted to, to destabilize that and decenter that and think about, okay, well, what happens when actually we, we go backwards? When, when people associate with going backwards, they think about regression, but that's not necessarily true. There's so much that happens in the past that isn't regressive and is actually very similar to what the characters in the present, which I have then turned into the past, go through. So I was interested in, in like subverting that and really turning it on top of itself.
2: This is such a tribute to your family, to your lineage and to, to the women who came before you. How did you do that research? I know you say that a lot is, is forgotten to history and a lot is fictionalized, but what tell us about your process.
1: Yeah. So my, I did a lot of reading and research on colonial Vietnam, on the rubber plantation, on, I just started like looking up different things about life, living life in Vietnam during the colonial period, during Indochina. And I started finding like, you know, one of the things that I found was, well, particularly for the social elite, I found that they hung out at a place called the Cirque Sportif, which is like a Mm -hmm. recreational club. And so I started, I would find things like that and then I would do research on it and then I would include it in the book. So there's um, the circle Sportif in the book. And then there's also like the Buddhist monk that burns himself. And so I did a lot of research into that. What's really fascinating about a lot of this historical research was that because the Vietnam War the or the Vietnam Civil War happened in the 60s and 70s, a lot of it is televised and a lot of it is like on tape. Like you can go, you can look up video of and audio of the Buddhist monk burning himself. And so a lot of my research was that just like going through news articles from the New York times, they have like a lot of the archives up and, and going through videos and things like that. And just like getting a feel for what it was like to be alive from that time. The, the really difficult part was thinking about it, not from an American perspective, but trying to imagine what it would be like to be a Vietnamese person in Vietnam during a civil war. So um, that was really hard, but i I found actually that it was easier in a way to write that the second half, the things that I had really made up, you know, going farther and farther back in time than it was to write like the close, stuff closer to the present day, because some of that felt like I had to purposefully remove the autobiography from it so that it was, you know, more interesting. Like I feel like sometimes our tendency are at least for, for me is when I'm writing, I'm writing from a lot of it is based in experience. And then I feel really attached to the experience. So then I, I'm like, I don't do what's best for the writing (laughs) And I'm like, but this is what really happened, but it actually doesn't really matter because it's fictional. So I found that the, the second half stuff with the research and all of the, you know, listening to audio clips and newspaper stuff was freeing also in a way, because I could really imagine outside of my own experience.
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's
0: plushcare.com slash weightloss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests, even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life. There are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy, online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash moms don't have time.
2: Did you, did you sit down with your mom and have longer conversations about her upbringing? Um, and what, were, what was that like? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, actually, my mother is very guarded with her stories. And that's partially what the book is about, right? Like it's about not being able to talk to your parents about things and so I did actually try to ask my mother about some of her experiences and she didn't really want to talk about them.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah. So she, she was a part of the social elite in Vietnam. She was a beauty pageant queen um, and she went to a lot of balls. And I, I tried to ask her about going to these balls because I was like so interested in the exclusivity of that, you know, particular social class in Vietnam. Like, it's so interesting to me. And they're in a kind of weird... Liminal space because they're Vietnamese and they're not, you know, French, white, French, European, um, but they're still very wealthy. So I I wanted to know about it, and I asked her about going to balls, and I asked her if she'd gone to the Cirque Sportif ball at the recreational club, and she was like, "I don't, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I've been to so many balls." (laughs) I was like, "What what about them, though?" She was like, "I don't remember. I went to so many." So she was very guarded. Um, I think that maybe she. It's very difficult for her to talk about it. But
2: a lot okay. of the stories that I got. Why, why is it? Why do you feel like it's so difficult for her or why? I,
1: I just think that it was a very traumatizing time for her. Mm-hmm. And I think to revisit it, even the really the fun parts of the joyful parts of her childhood bring up something that, you know, even it's painful still because it's a
2: past that she doesn't have access to anymore. You has know, she like, read. Has she read the she, book? she has not read the book. (laughs) Does she plan to?
1: I don't know. I, I'm going to, I'm giving her a copy, but, um, I mean, I hope she reads it, but she's not a big reader. And I think part of that is also the, the language gap, Mm -hmm. but she, the thing that she mostly reads is like horoscopes in in her little horoscope almanac. So I hope that she reads it. She's going to have a copy, but you know, I did give her the essay that I wrote about the trophy and she read it and she was like, yeah, sounds good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, mom.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm like, mom, tell me more. Please. Anything else. Yes. She's very, very, very guarded with her stories. So I think that it's probably because um, she's been through a lot, you know, and, and even nostalgia. I mean, I think probably especially nostalgia for the things for times gone past are like really, really hard for her. So, but the person that I did actually get a lot of stories from was my dad, who was also a writer. And he like when he found out that I was a writer, he was like, Let me tell you about all my stories. So he was very, you know, he was very generous with those.
2: Oh, that's I kind of that's neat, you know, that it's this this the book still tells the story through women, but um but your dad was also instrumental in helping craft that narrative.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. He's like, he's not the Kung of the book, um, but he is a very complex man who was like very much like a masculine. I mean, I think that Vietnam really Vietnamese culture really prizes, you know, the first son and, you know, the, the masculine archetype of like the Vietnamese man and so he was very much, he was the first born son in his family. And <laughs> you can definitely tell, like he had a lot of confidence and he was, you know, he was like, he just did things in his life that were like, could only be born of the confidence from someone who had been celebrated his whole life by mm-hmm. his family. And so he's very interesting person but yeah a lot of his he was very funny because when I when I wrote that essay about the trophy and then when I was writing this book about mothers and daughters my dad was kind of like
2: when are you gonna write a story about about dads (laughs) (laughs) I was like uh calm down this is only a debut novel dad like, (laughs)
1: yeah, there'll be more.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, your Twitter profile says that you are a writer Gilmore girl and Kardashian expert. And I'd love to unpack this because, because I do love the way through the book, you kind of weave in pop culture, but reality TV in particular. So whether it's the beauty contest or the bachelor anyway, tell us about that.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. I love reality television, and actually, like the amount of reality television that I watch is disgusting. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure people are like, "When does she write? She's watching reality television all the time." So,
2: okay, when do you write? When you? <laughs> how
1: do <laughs> yeah. you? How do you divvy up the time? <laughs> <laughs> I write in bursts. So, like, some writers wake up like at dawn and they're like writing every day. Um, I, am not that person. And actually I think it is like good for those writers. Like I actually really envy them, but I also think that, that, that kind of belief that you have to do that is sometimes damaging because there are so many people who don't have the time to do that. Like moms, for example, don't have time to just, you know, every single day consistently write. Sometimes they have to write at nap time or, you know, whenever, um, that's not me. I'm not a mom. (laughs) So I have to write between my reality television binges, <laughs> but I, I write in verse and usually at night and I'll watch reality television, you know, whenever whenever it airs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and do you, do you watch it live or record? Like, do you binge it or do you want to like...
1: Yeah, I'm a recorder. Okay. I'm, a, I'm a person who records. Mm-hmm. Although I will say it is much more fun to watch something live because then you feel like you're a part of like... The, this communal thing, like all mm-hmm. these other people are watching it. Like if you watch something like The Voice Live, it's way more fun because you can do voting and um, they have like an app. Like, yes, I've downloaded the app. <laughs> you can like, say who you like. <laughs> but yeah, and watching, I watch a lot of The Bachelor, although it has felt like more of a job than a joy lately because <laughs> there's like so much content. But yeah, I, I really loved... I just love it because it's so ridiculous. Like it is like, who would, if you went back like 50 years or like hundred years and you're like, one day there's going to be a show called the biggest loser or the fat is that? Yes. It's called the biggest loser, right? I think so. What about weight loss? Um, and there's a show called the biggest loser where Or there's a show where this woman goes on and she makes out with like 30 men and then finds a, a, like a partner from that. Like they would be like, no, there's not, that's ridiculous. So I love the kind of over the top ridiculousness, like the the gall to have a show like that. I love that the spectacle of it. Like I always think about like the people that are on the show, like why, like what is their motivation for being on the show? Like why put yourself through this? This agony, this scrutiny. And so I love thinking about each person's motivation on a show like that. And it's just such a situation that's potential for such conflict and rife. And so I thought, you know, why not include it in a book? Like you would be crazy not to. It
2: was it was also like some of the like funnier and lighter moments of the book. I love a lot of the interactions and when the the bachelor was like. I just love the way you kind of poke fun at it. And well, I wouldn't say you poke fun at it because like you're a consumer and you, you love it, but, but you, you highlight some of the the silliness and absurdity. Of yeah. It. <laughs> I mean, I think it's fair to say that I poke fun at it. Okay, fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think you could, I can definitely uh, make fun of the fact that I am a consumer of <laughs> this ridiculous thing, but you know, I also just think that People judge reality television for being trash TV, which I mean, yes, it is. But it's also like the, the way that it's constructed is also a kind of art. Like they, there are many narratives in a show like The Bachelor that come from just raw material, like just hours and hours of footage that would otherwise be nothing. Like they're just creating storylines from nothingness. And the Kardashians too is a really great example of that. Um, where like, they're just living their lives. They're just, you know, Kendall's just cutting a cucumber uh-huh. and they make a story out of it. Thank it, God. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. So I do sometimes watch it for like, okay, let me see, let me see the artfulness here and figure out what they're doing. Um, so I do watch it for that as well.
2: And I also just want to let everyone know people are listening to this, but I feel like it's okay for you to speak very confidently about this passion of yours because behind you right now, you have about 200 (laughs) books on your book wall. So it's not like it is sacrificing your time writing or reading either. Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you know, like, I think that there there's so much snobbery with genre and medium and if we think about someone like Charles Dickens who wrote serialized novels, that was considered like the equivalent of trash TV. Like you got it in the mail and you you consumed it and it was like this little just little bit of joy and it was considered, you know, just like throwaway. Like you literally throw it in the trash afterwards. And in Shakespeare too, right? Like there are fart jokes in Shakespeare. But fast forward a couple hundred years and people are like, "Oh, this is high art." So I think that there's something worth interrogating about ourselves whenever we say that something is trash because it doesn't have we don't have to consider it trash just because it's enjoyable or it. I think also it's um, sometimes conflated with women's books or women's television is often considered trash. And I think that, you know, again, interrogate that. Like, why? Why do you consider it trash?
2: I'd love to, do, you to know, do a time capsule and we'll see if in 500, sorry, a bug just flew in my face. If in like several hundred years, keeping up with the Kardashians is likened to Hamlet or Othello or. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> um, well, generationally, we, yeah. <laughs> the book is about generation.
2: Right. Um, Real quick, Phoebe Bridgers, you had on repeat while you wrote your book. Yes. Oh my God. I. I love her i don't know normally i
1: i write in complete silence and like i need to be like alone i need no sounds sometimes like my husband will come in and be like do you want water like he's like trying to be nice i'm like leave me alone Get out. <laughs> yeah he's like being super nice and i'm like i need silence So it's very, it's actually very, it was odd that I was listening to music at all while I was writing. But I think later on in the book, I, a book, writing a book is such an enormous endeavor. Like it's so time consuming and you just spend hours and hours just slaving away, trying to wrench the words from yourself and I think that because I spent so long on it, I was like, I need to change it up. Like I need to listen to something, maybe some ambiance, I don't know, something that's unintrusive, uh, uh, unobtrusive. And I don't know how I happened upon, upon Phoebe Bridgers, but I think I just like randomly found her on Spotify and just started playing her music. And I was like, oh, this is kind of relaxing. So I started off just having it very, very low. Like the song was just on like volume one. And then I started recognizing some of the songs, like subconsciously. And I was really drawn to garden song. There's this one line in the song. That's like the doctor said that my resentment's getting smaller and he like feels her liver, or her kidney or something, some organ and says that her, her resentment's getting smaller. And I, and I remember hearing that line and thinking, Oh, that's like Really, that's really quite artful. And so then I started just like turning the music up a little bit higher and listening to the song. and then I just started repeating garden song <laughs> over and over again. So it kind of turned into this whole thing where I had to have garden song on while I was writing. And actually, one of the chapters at the and towards the end of the book, one of the one of the ancestors is digging in the garden and finds you know an object in the dirt and then has her first period it that That was actually, I was like, I have to write like an homage chapter to Garden Song and Phoebe Bridgers. So that's what that chapter is about, really. Oh, I love that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I feel so indebted to Phoebe. So I had to do something.
2: (laughs) Phoebe Bridgers, if you're listening.
1: Yes. Please,
2: please come here and hang out with me. I love you. I'll come over for that too. No,
1: yeah, yeah. I'll be like, "Hey, Phoebe's here." <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, E.M. Tran, what's next for you, and where can we find you? Where, if listeners want to want to learn more about you and your writing, where do we go?
1: Well, um, I have a website, ElizabethMTran.com, and I usually post my publications there on my on one of my pages. Um, so, and I update my events there. So, um, I'm doing a bunch of events this fall. I'm going like all over the place. I'm actually going to, you know, Virginia and New York and Texas. So I'll be all over the place if you want to see me read. And I'll be working on, you know, going forward, I'll be working on my next novel. It is about sorority, sorority women in the south. And it is based in a fictional town in northern Louisiana near some Indian mounds, a real place called Poverty Point. And so I'll be working on that novel.
2: Well. Fascinating. I can't wait for it to come out and to read that. And in the meantime, E.M. Taran, Daughters of the New Year, congratulations on this amazing debut novel. Definitely, definitely recommend it with a thanks. hot cup of tea.
0: <laughs> yes. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.